0: Good morning. If I were to ask you to sum up marriage in one word, what would it be? Have you noticed a pattern over the last few weeks? We've started by asking how we would sum up our one word in one word. If you were to sum up marriage or define marriage using only one word, what word would you choose? Maybe faithfulness, maybe covenant, maybe loving. All good words, all good descriptors, but what about this word? You ever use that word to define marriage? What is the gospel? Maybe that's where we need to start. Maybe we need to back up a little bit. What is the gospel? I think a lot of people would say the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would say to that, yes, but that's not all. Some people would point to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 4 and say, this is the gospel. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That's it. That's the gospel, right? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says it right there. But notice he doesn't say that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel. He says that it was of first importance. In other words, it forms the basis of the gospel. But that's not the whole of the gospel. If you want to see the whole of the gospel and a great description of the gospel, you've got to turn to Colossians chapter 1. And if you look in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The gospel is more than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus formed the basis of it, but that's not all there is to the gospel. You want to know what the gospel is? It's this. The Messiah reigns. The anointed one has come. The gospel is Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. The gospel is that there is atonement, there is redemption. In fact, the whole message of the Bible is what? Redemption. That's the whole message. That is the thread that runs throughout. It's redemption and how the redeemed people of God are to live. That's the gospel. That's the narrative. And the narrative includes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but that's not all that there is. As you probably know, you have to obey the gospel. To be a part of God's chosen people, the remnant that lives out what we see in the Bible in the New Testament, to be a part of that, you have to respond to the gospel. Grace is not sprinkled upon you like some magical pixie dust. God is not going to force redemption on you. It must be accepted. There's a free gift of grace that we must accept. And the Bible speaks about obeying the gospel at least three times. Romans 10:16, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 1 Peter 4, 17. But what's interesting about those passages is that every time it mentions obeying the gospel it's in a negative light it's about what will happen if you don't obey the gospel if you don't surrender to god's will the idea of submitting to god's will means that it is a full-on surrender and yes being baptized in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit for the forgiveness of sins is a part of that process but it's not the only thing involved you see obeying the gospel is also continuing to grow to be sanctified to to submit yourself to God's will from now until the day that you die or until the day that Christ returns whichever comes first in your life right now you are either obeying the gospel or you're not once a person is immersed into Christ they become a part of God's family and they are to live out the gospel They are to live out their baptism for the rest of their lives. What Paul is addressing in his letters is not a message to people who need to be baptized. He is addressing people who have been baptized. And he's saying, live out your baptism. Continue to grow. Continue to mature in the faith. Remember your baptism and continue living it out. And that includes every aspect of your life, including your marriage. Here's the thing, I think all too often in our culture, we zero in on what makes for a happy marriage, and we consider that the goal of life is to find someone that you can marry and be happy with. Happiness in marriage is a wrong goal, because you can be happy in your marriage for a lifetime and never have a godly marriage. There is something bigger at play here. It's more involved than just being happy. Oftentimes what we do is we turn marriage into something that is self-centered and selfish. It's all about getting my needs met. Sometimes we put a relationship with our spouse above a relationship with God even. Do you believe that we can make marriage an idol? I think we can. I think we have many times. Anytime you put a relationship above God, you have made it an idol. It's not that we shouldn't value marriage, it's just that we shouldn't overvalue it. Because marriage is about something bigger. It's about the gospel. I want you to notice what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, starting in verse 29. And I want you to notice also, we'll get there in just a second, is Matthew twenty-two thirty, And we're gonna consider these two together for a moment this morning. And I'll be honest with you, they are very challenging to me. And they probably will be to you as well when you consider them in the light of their context. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 and following, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Notice that first line. The time has been shortened. Consider also Matthew 22 and verse 30 when Jesus said this. For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Your marriage won't last forever. Let that sink in. We talk about being married forever. You won't be married forever. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Maybe you're someone who lost your spouse long ago and you got married again. Which one's going to be your wife in the resurrection? Which one's going to be your husband at the resurrection? For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. You won't be married forever. Think about that. And relate it to what Paul has said. For the time has been shortened. Now, I think it's important to understand what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say that you won't know your spouse in heaven. He didn't say that you won't have some sort of bond with your spouse in heaven. I think all too often we read too much into things and we consider, you know, well, if if I'm not going to see my spouse in heaven, I don't know that I even want to be there. And I think Jesus would say that's ridiculous, okay? Because whatever is in heaven that's better is going to be astronomically better. So you've got to trust Jesus here, right? You've got to trust that if heaven is better and it's going to be astronomically better, then we trust in him and we just follow what he has to say, even though we may not understand it all. But Jesus is dealing with an issue here in context. He's talking to the Sadducees, the people who didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they try to paint him into a corner by saying, "Well, what about the woman who has been, you know, put away and then taken by another man? You know, it, it, it was a, it was the law of the day that if if a man, you know, passed away, then the brother took the wife, and you know, because if a woman was living on her own, she was bound and destined to be poor and and destitute, and she had no hope in the world of making it." And so what about that woman who's had seven different men or husbands, right? What's that going to be like? Who's she going to marry in the resurrection? And Jesus says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, you're looking at this all wrong. So you think about these words for us who are married in this day and age. You're not going to be married forever. So what are you going to do about that? What are we going to do about our marriage right here and right now? These words should challenge us. They should make us stop. They should make us pause and consider the marriage that we currently have and what we're doing in that marriage. They should cause us to stop and say, who comes first? Does the love of God come first in my life? Do I love God more than my spouse? Are you putting an earthly relationship above an eternal one? All this really comes down to an earthly mindset that really clouds everything that we think about and everything that we do in this life, including how we perceive marriage. Because it's easy to get caught up in this life as being the most important thing. I think that's what our life does. That's what our culture does. It it forces us to think about this life as being the most important. It demands it. But we have to be able to see past this life and see something bigger life isn't just about having a good job a good marriage or a good life or a happy family don't get me wrong all those things are good things and I'm not saying it's wrong to even aspire to those things they're just not the most important thing but oftentimes we overvalue these things to the point that we push God out of the picture we have to look at marriage and all of life from an eternal perspective and I want you to hear me clearly on this. Don't walk away this morning saying, well, Chris doesn't value marriage. Not at all. You've heard me say over and over again that marriage is the most sacred human relationship. And I stand by that. And absolutely, we should be valuing our marriages. Paul did. The same Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 30, also talked about the sanctity of marriage and how marriage relates to Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 5 over and over again in the Bible we see that marriage was a a good metaphor at least God considered it to be for his covenant relationship with his people marriage is important it's the most sacred human relationship but the Bible isn't a book about marriage the Bible is a book about God and we have to keep that in perspective and we have to remember what comes first we have to remember what relationship comes first. Go back to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Notice that first line, the time has been shortened. The context of Paul's words is he's expecting or he's anticipating the second coming of Jesus. And he's saying, because the time has been shortened, you don't have time to gripe and complain with your wife or your husband. You don't have time. That's why he says, For those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep, you don't have time to weep. You don't have time to really rejoice and party. You don't have time to do all these things like buying and possessing things. Those aren't the things you need to be worrying about as much as worrying about preparing for Jesus' coming. The time has been shortened. Remember, it was also Paul who talked about how he would prefer it if people would remain unmarried. Those who weren't married just remain unmarried because when you get married, it's a distraction a lot of times. And now you're focusing on your spouse. A lot of times they can take away from your relationship with God because you're too focused on your needs getting met or their needs getting met, and you place that relationship above a relationship with God. And Paul is saying, you know, in, in view of the times, it's probably best just to remain unmarried and devote yourself to what's most important. But, God, but, but Paul didn't speak out against marriage. He didn't say it was wrong to get married. In fact, he said you should if your passions are burning, if you can't control them, you need to get married. But he's saying it's probably best if you're unmarried, just to remain that way because the time has been shortened. Eternity is forever. Prepare now for eternity. Do the things that are most important. Foster the most important relationship. Notice verses 32 and following. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's the theme of Paul's words, undistracted devotion to the Lord. You go back to what he said previously, you don't have time to be griping with your spouse. You don't have have time to be weeping or rejoicing and all these other things. The time is at hand. It's time for undistracted devotion to the Lord. That was his point. He's not saying that marriage is bad. He's just saying that we shouldn't let it distract us from what's most important. I'm not going to play Paul this morning and tell you that if you're single, you should just remain unmarried. The point I want to make is this that the most sacred earthly relationship cannot override the most sacred heavenly relationship marriage is to be valued it is not to be overvalued in essence Paul's point was that there's something bigger to consider don't get things twisted here there's something bigger to consider and because Divorce runs rampant in our culture because the divorce rate is so high. We typically react by saying, well, you know, we've got to put more emphasis on our marriages. We've got to make sure that we're teaching people what it means to be married and stay married. And I think all of that is true. I will not do a wedding ceremony unless the couple goes through premarital counseling. I believe that strongly in preparing them for a lifelong marriage. However, In our reaction, we sometimes overreact. And we put so much emphasis on the marriage that we allow it to override a relationship with God. And we even kind of justify it by thinking that God is pleased as long as we are promoting one another, even if God is on down the list two or three spaces. Marriage should be a relationship in which we can enhance our devotion to God. It should be a means to an end it's not just about you it's not just about your spouse it's not just about being happy it's about promoting God a question we should all ask ourselves is am I valuing God am I promoting God in my marriage when God looks at my marriage what does he see does he see two people that are promoting him first and foremost We often distort Christianity into some belief system that's main purpose is to help us build good families. We garner this mentality that the goal of the Christian life is to have a blissful marriage and and God's a means to that end. No, our marriage is a means to an end. Our marriage should be about a holy union that promotes God, that promotes the gospel. It's not only that, I understand. But it should be that. Above all else, this life is not just about being happy in marriage. It's about having uh, not just a good family, but a great relationship with God. And that trickles down, because if I get God right, I get everything right. I heard a preacher illustrate it like this one time. He said a lot of marriages are like two people who are underwater. And they have one scuba tank, one scuba apparatus. And they're passing the oxygen back and forth to stay alive. One of them takes a sip, they put it in the other person's mouth, and they take some, and they go back and forth. Never realizing that each one of them has their own oxygen tank. Not understanding that God is their oxygen. He's the one that brings life into them, He's the one that, that they should find fulfillment in, first and foremost. The Lord is my shepherd, not my spouse. And you will never go wrong by putting God first in your marriage. It's not like you have to give up something in your relationship with your spouse. You gain everything. Again, if you get God right, you get everything right. Your marriage will not suffer when God is first. In fact, it will be quite the opposite. How many of you have a priority list? Even if you don't abide by it, you have one, right? And what's your priority list? Probably God first, then family, or husband, wife, children, work, maybe something like that, right? Now, we may not live this out, but we know that's what it's supposed to be. Somebody ask us, well, you know, God first, even if he doesn't, that's what we know we should say, right? I've heard coaches put it like this, faith, family, football, right? That's our priority list. I want to propose to you this morning that all of us have a different priority list. Here's what I propose. Number one, God. Number two, there is no number two. How about that? How about God first and nothing else? How about we put God first and let him trickle down into every aspect of our lives? How about we let him permeate everything that we do? How about we allow him to saturate our lives in every way, including our marriages? How about that? How about we have only one person on that list? Kyle Eidelman, in his book, God's at War, says this, God is always first place, but there are no places. God isn't interested in competing against others or being first among many. God will not be part of any hierarchy. He wasn't saying before me as in ahead of me. A better understanding of the Hebrew word translated before me is in my presence. God declines to sit atop an organizational flow chart. He is the organization. He is not interested in being president of the board. He is the board. And life doesn't work until everyone else sitting around the table in the boardroom of your heart is fired. He is God. And there are no other applicants for that position. So let's keep things in perspective. Most of us have no problem with a statement like that. Most of us have no problem believing that God should come first. In theory, we like that and we agree with it. But putting it into practice is a whole different thing, right? Applying it to our lives is something entirely different. It's easy to assign divinity to things that aren't divine. And it's really easy when we're talking about our spouse or our family because the Bible talks about both of those being good and how we are as men to be the leader and and how we are to take care of our families, how we are raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord or to take care of our wives. And so as men, we can really buy into that and say, you know, look, I'm doing God's work. But what if it overrules a relationship with God? What if it comes before a relationship with God? That's why I always tell young people, and I've told my kids, marry someone who loves God more than you. We talk about it in in, in premarital counseling. Marry someone who loves God more than you. I used to say, make sure you marry a Christian. But then I had girls, and I realized there are some Christians I don't want them marrying. Marry someone who loves God more than you. And I think if you do that, you're going to have a much greater chance Of ensuring a godly marriage and one that will last a lifetime and one that will make a difference not just in your own home but in the world around you so I would tell our wives try telling your husband I love you too much to make an idol out of you and try telling your wife husbands try telling her I love you too much to make you the center of my world God comes first Jesus spoke about this, didn't he? Luke chapter 14. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We've said it over and over again. The word hate in this passage does not carry the emotional co- uh, connotation like we think of hate. It's not, it's not expressing emotion. It's expressing rank. Jesus isn't saying you have to hate your spouse if you're going to follow me. He's saying you have to love them less. I've got to come first. Again, back to what we mentioned a moment ago with Paul and what Jesus said. This is about who comes first in your life. The time is shortened. Remember where your devotion lies first and foremost. Doesn't mean you can't be devoted to your spouse. In fact, you should be. But that devotion is a byproduct of your devotion to God. That comes first, right? By comparison to God and Jesus Christ says, you are to love your spouse less. I don't know about you, but those words in 1 Corinthians 7 as well as Matthew 22 and 30, they bother me a little bit, don't they, you? You read those words, and if you're happily married, you're sitting there going, wow, I struggle with that. I don't know if I could do ministry without my wife. I should rephrase that. I don't know that I would be as effective in ministry without my wife. And I have a hard time with my finite mind understanding a time when I won't be married to my wife. That's a struggle for me. Of course, I understand that God is in control. I understand that I'm trying to understand something with a finite mind that's infinite. And if heaven is everything that the Bible presents it to be, presents it to be and more than, than I trust, whatever my relationship is with, with my wife or anybody is going to be astronomically better, right? But there's a struggle in the here and now. It's difficult to wrap our minds around. And it's difficult maybe to... To wrap our minds around marriage being something more or something bigger than what our culture promotes and even the church culture promotes. Understanding that yes, it's about devotion to one another. It's, a, it's about, you know, a, a social, sexual, physical, intimate relationship. It's all of those things, but it's more, right? There's something bigger at play here. It's a holy union that's about something bigger than just me and my wife. Everything that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7 can be boiled down to this. Mission before marriage. Don't forget where your number one devotion should lie. The time has been shortened. Our number one purpose as a people is to go out and proclaim the gospel, right? We are to be a mission-minded people. It drives me nuts when I see people on television talking about, Then I'm just trying to find my purpose. We all have the same purpose. Our purpose is to glorify God. It's to share the gospel. That's our purpose. That's your purpose. That's my purpose. Now, maybe you're trying to find your lot in life and maybe what career you're supposed to be doing and all that, but even in that career, you're supposed to be promoting God, glorifying God. That's your purpose. We all have the same purpose. And we don't drop that purpose or shove it aside when we get married. It's still there. And in fact, our spouse should be there to help us carry out that purpose. Living with an eternal perspective should change us. We don't do that very often. Because we're too focused on the here and now, and, and, and we've made, we've kind of made our eternity right here. This is heaven for most of us. This is everything that we love and everything that we enjoy, including our marriage. And if Paul's words do nothing else, they should bring into clear focus that, look, the time is shortened. Think about eternal things. Jesus could come back in the next five minutes. You could die in the next five minutes. What are you doing to further the gospel? What are you doing to prepare for eternity? Help your spouse to get there as well. New Year's Eve, 2017, you remember that day? Wasn't that long ago. It was a Sunday, and we didn't have church because Abilene was frozen. You remember that? I got a call that morning from one of our elders, Larry Bell, and he said, you know, we have made the decision as an eldership to cancel services for today. It's just, it's too treacherous out there. If you would, help me get the word out. And I said, okay. So we, you know, put it on social media, called the news stations, things like that. And he said, by the way, there is a a house fire over by where you live. It's pretty bad. And he asked me if I knew the family that lived there. He gave me their name, and sure enough, I did. Knew them well. They attended schools at Wiley, and two of them played for Coach Ruffin. Another one's about to. And so Larry said, well, I'm, g- I'm about to head over there. And I said, well, if you would, pick me up on your way. And so we get to the house. It's a, pretty much a total loss. It's still smoking, but the fire is out. They lost most of their stuff. They're sitting in their car, shivering, trying to warm up and trying to process everything that had happened. You know, they wake up to a burning house at 5 o'clock in the morning. It was so great to see the outpouring of love and affection from the neighbors. It was really neat. I don't mean to embarrass you, Larry, but it was really neat to see Larry, the fire chief, and his role as an elder meld together. That was neat to see a fire chief and an elder both at work at the same time, blending together. It was neat to see Coach Ruffin show up and put his arms around them and love on them and say, what can I do for you? It was neat to see the neighbors come over and say, hey, get out of your car, come to the house, we're going to cook you breakfast and we're going to get you, you know, cleaned up and all that. That was, that was really neat. It was neat to see what our church did going forward, giving them a check, more than one check for a high amount to get them back on their feet need to see the outpouring from the community and all that but it made me stop and think how many houses in our neighborhoods are burning to the ground ever think about that as you sit in the comfort of your own home with your beautiful wife or your handsome husband the house right next door to you may be on fire and you don't even know it it may be in danger of burning to the ground you don't smell smoke Maybe they're really good at hiding it. In fact, there may be multiple houses on your street that are burning, in danger of being total losses. While we remodel our kitchen or change out the flooring, we don't ever recognize it, right? Pay attention to the people around you, even in your own neighborhood. Do you know your neighbors? I mean, we can start by presenting the gospel to people right next door to us, right? building a relationship with them, trying to get to know them a little better. One thing that I have learned in ministry is there are a lot of broken and messed up people. And we tend to think that church is for those who have it all together, who come in cleaned up and washed up. And No, it's for the messed up and the, and, and the people who need fixing. And there are probably people all around you that could benefit from you. And if you're married, they could benefit from your marriage. And you're seeing this as an opportunity to reach out with the gospel. There's something bigger at play here. Eternity should change our perspective on life, and it should change the way that we live. It should cause us to look at life differently. It should cause us to see the bigger picture. It should change the way we view marriage as well. I would say to you this morning, love your spouse. Value your spouse. Enjoy the life that you have built together. Marriage is a beautiful creation. But it's not God. Marriage is a means by which we can serve God better and live out the gospel. Recognize your marriage as a holy union where you two can be in it together to spread the gospel and to help those are needy. Maybe you can be a fireman for someone whose house is ablaze. Help one another get to heaven. Help others get to heaven. If you have a need this morning that we can help you with, maybe your marriage is not everything that it it should be. Maybe you know that you need a godly marriage, but it's not that. Maybe one or, or both of you need to put on Christ and baptism and begin a daily walk with God. Or maybe you've done that and perhaps you're just not living out God's will in your life. Maybe you live in a burning house. You need the prayers and support of this church family. Whatever your need is. Kevin's going to lead us in a song. Come now as we stand and as we sing.